Welcome to another episode of VR and Education. Today on the show, we have two wonderful guests who authored a book on VR called Envisioning Reality. So David Kayser is a STEM teacher at Barberton City School District in Ohio and was a finalist for the 2019 State of Ohio Teacher of the Year. And we also have Meredith Thompson, who's currently a research scientist and lecturer for the Scheller Teacher Education Program. She has her master's in science and engineering and a doctorate in science education from Boston University. Welcome to the show, you guys. Thank you. Let's get started right away. One of the first questions I always ask people is, what, like, what got you Thanks. interested in VR? Dave? You know, uh, my interest stemmed from the students I teach. Uh, I teach in a district that has a high rate of low-income families. And because they can't really afford to buy VR gaming computers, uh, they need to power it. Um, but a lot of times they come to me with ideas or, that interest them. And they, I had a group of them start talking about VR one day. And I knew that we could never get approval for it if we only used it to play games. Um, so we talked about the possibilities it could have for education. And those conversations over time, we didn't have them every day. But uh, once or twice a week, we would just kind of sit up front in class in the last couple of minutes and talk about what it could look like. And um, out of it, those conversations grew into a grant idea to bring VR on what I would call a fairly large scale to my school by developing a class whose sole purpose was to research educational applications to help classroom teachers. Um, and out of that, we wrote a grant, got it funded. And truthfully, the first time I ever put on a VR headset was after the grant was written and approved and funded and when we were able to actually purchase the equipment. So my interest really stemmed from my students' interest. Mm. Talk about trust as well. Way to go. How about you, Meredith? So um, my experience with VR has also not been um, very long. Um, one of the things that we do in the Education Arcade, which is where I work at MIT, is we design games to help people learn STEM topics. And so Oculus put out a call for programs that wanted to design around STEM topics. And we wrote a proposal and got funded to develop um, a VR-based game. And we decided to develop a VR-based game about cellular biology. So since then, uh, I connected with David because um, he saw my boss, Eric Klopfer, speak. And then we just started to think about, okay, how does VR, how can we envision VR in K-12 classrooms? And so that's kind of what, what sparked the idea for the book. Awesome. So I, I had the wonderful opportunity to read the book. And one of the things that struck me was in the conclusion of your book, you write, virtual reality has the potential to be a powerful learning tool and with the right support and content dot, dot, dot. Can one of you elaborate on the right content, what that might be? I'll tackle that one. Um, in my opinion, for the right content, um, it needs to be 
uh, a powerful or for the right content to be a powerful learning tool, uh, it needs to be meaningful. Uh, you can't just have an environment where students are just being fed information. Powerful content comes when they can interact and be become part of the virtual world, while at the same time, it needs to deliver meaningful content and feedback to the user. So the more interactive the VR experience is, the more the content, the more the content the student will remember. Um, there's so much of learning and remembering that is done through movement and motor activities. And that's why I think that without the powerful content, it's just a gaming device. Meredith, did you want to add to that? I think uh, David has a really good point in that um, when you're thinking about virtual reality in terms of what it does for learning, uh, there are two main affordances. And one of them, as David was saying, is this idea of interactivity. How can you uh, use your entire body? How can you um, learn the material without just, you know, we use a lot of our eyes and our ears and our hands to write, but how do you engage the entire body in learning and in experiencing? The second thing, so interactivity is one thing, and the second um, affordance of VR is this idea of presence. So you're able to transport yourself to a different place and really feel like you're there. So you can study Egypt in class and then pour through the Egyptian pyramids, or you can uh, study World War II and, uh, actually be um, at Pearl Harbor and experience that um, in a way that's very, very visible. Cool. Uh, David, you alluded to this earlier on when I asked you about your origin story. In your book, you talk a lot about giving students ownership and agency and involvement, and you provide them with an opportunity to look at different applications within your school and the class that you teach so that they can evaluate them. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about tips and tricks uh, in relationship to giving kids this kind of agency or even just providing examples from the projects and the classwork that you do with students? Well, from the very beginning of the class idea, uh, it started with students and I wanted that to be a key component not just in the development and the design of the class, but also in the implementation. I'm, I'm humble enough to recognize that a lot of my students know more about technology, more about computers than I do. So I lean on their expertise um, when there's things I don't understand or need help with. And I feel confident in their abilities that I can give them a task or an assignment and say, hey, go work on this and come back to me and kind of report what you find and even take notes on it. So there's always a conversation going on. Um, when they come to me with ideas, sometimes they're not feasible. We, we don't have the time or space or the money to try it. But there are some things that, that crop up and, and I go, hey, that's a great idea. And then I go, why don't you explore it further? You know, find out what you can and then report back to me. And then from there, uh, as a class, we'll build on it. Um, you know, I'll have them kind of present their ideas to the class and then we decide, is this something we can take to, whether it's a biology class or um, uh, a, an anatomy and physiology class or a physics class or the art class, is it something we can take to them uh, and expand upon it? So I do rely on their expertise. Um, I look to them, you know, to give me ideas because I think there's a lot to be learned from teenagers. Was there ever an instance where you absolutely disagreed with a student's evaluation or opinion of a uh, VR application? Uh, 
I can. Uh, it's it's more of a, a joke than anything else. Um, it's not even much of an educational VR application. It's called Marble World. And I had a kid test it out once. And he came back to me and he said, I didn't think it was any good. And then one day after school, I started to play with it. And it's very much a cause and effect uh, physics type game. And uh, it has multiple levels to it. And I tried it out. And when he came back in one day, I said, I said, Zach, I go, this is awesome. <laughs> I go, how you ever decided to tell me that it was terrible is beyond me. So him and I, I still see him sometimes. We joke about uh, some of our disagreements in the past, but it's all respectful. Now, Meredith, you discuss this a bit at the start, your work with MIT. Tell us more about the game that your group designed, which kind of, if, if I pronounce the acronym, it's CLEVER, C-L-E-V-R. Tell us sort of how that works. So uh, CLEVER and is Collaborative Learning Environment for Virtual Reality. That's, uh, that's our acronym. Everything needs an acronym. And um, so CLEVER is one instance within what we hope will be a bigger project um, with lots of collaborative virtual environment games in it. CLEVER uh, is a game where you learn about cells by exploring a cell that has a genetic disease, specifically cystic fibrosis. And you have to find clues in the cell as to which type of cystic fibrosis the cell has. So you have a partner who's actually outside of VR. So you have one person on a tablet and one person in VR, and they have to work together to figure out what's wrong with a cell by finding different clues. So again, this is a, it's not only learning biology, but also learning uh, collaborative problem-solving skills, which are important to develop. I love that idea. I think it's called asymmetrical gaming. And uh, I use a similar application at school here, but it's called Keep Talking and No One Explodes. Have any of you two heard of that asymmetrical game? Yes, I have. And so again, I love the, the two premises there. One, you can involve more than just one person who has the VR headset, but two, you know, the communication that has to happen between the, the participant in the headset and then anyone outside is paramount. <laughs> there you go. Another one that's come out that I'm just trying to sort of tweak a bit is Akron. Akron uh, has less of an educational application, but I still think strategies there. So a person's a tree in the VR headset, and then everyone else is on their cell phone. And it's almost like playing capture the flag, but with cell phones and then VR. So the people with their phones, they're squirrels, and they have to try and steal acorns from the tree, the tree and they have different sort of abilities. And so I've played it a few times here in my advisor group, which works on pastoral care skills. And it's funny because the kids play it once and they have no plan whatsoever. And all of a sudden, if you sit them down and say, you need to come up with a strategy here, otherwise you won't beat the tree. And they start to think of how they work as a team, etc. I, 
my, my students enjoy playing on off days, uh, keep talking and nobody explodes. And I share some of those same opinions you do. You know, the first couple times they play it, they're just getting used to uh, how the game works and they kind of are experimenting a little bit with how to communicate most effectively. But then in between games, it's fantastic to just kind of sit in the background and listen to their conversations uh, and share, okay, the next time this comes up, let's use this strategy. So I'm definitely on board with what you're saying. Meredith, is the use of VR, in your opinion, quite different than, than K-12? So, sorry, I didn't phrase that correctly. Is the use of VR in higher education quite different than how you've seen it being used with your conversations with Dave or other schools in K-12? So um, I'm familiar with a few different places that use VR. Um, one is uh, I went to a conference um, at Oklahoma University, and what they do there is they center their VR lab in the library, and then the library helps you get the word out about research applications and support um, professors as they're using the, uh, the applications. So it's a lot like the setup that David has, but instead of having it be the STEM 11th and 12th grade students who are doing the researching and doing support, um, they have the library as kind of a center for, um, for research and support. The other thing that uh, that also happens at Harvard University, and Harvard has a um, bunch of headsets that they actually can lend out. You can actually take a Oculus um, Quest out of the library and borrow it. And so they're they're kind of that's an, an, a resource for people who are interested in um, in VR. The other thing that happens at universities is um, they have classes in VR. And so um, I was just at a class where um, students from Berkeley School of Music, students from Harvard and students from MIT get together and they design um, VR applications. So they learn all about VR and then at the end of the capstone project is to design this application. Um, and so I went to see them and it's amazing what you can do in a short amount of time. Um, they built some really cool projects. Um, and Finally, there are kind of labs, research labs that uh, happen at universities and they're doing a little bit more of the focused, um, you know, how do we measure learning? How do we measure presence and immersion? How do, we, um, how do we optimize those types of learning environments? So those are the kinds of things that I see at the university. I see kind of, um, you know, libraries as centers, classes and uh, laboratories, research laboratories. Good answer. Uh, Dave, I'm going to shift the focus back to you for a sec. Often when I do interview people or talk to other schools, one of the questions that often comes up is, how do these expensive devices help our school or district raise test scores? How would you speak to a question like that? Well, uh, I think you have to look to a little bit of research um, and jump back into some of those early education classes to answer that. Uh, we have shifted learning from, there's a lot of movement and doing in lower elementary grades. The kids are up moving all the time, using their whole body. They set things to music and motions. And then by the time they get to middle school and high school, because we're so content oriented, 
uh, all, all we see students doing is usually sitting at a desk. Maybe they have a Chromebook or a computer in front of them. But we've taken away a lot of that movement. But research shows us that the more senses you can get involved in learning, the better your outcomes are going to be. So while I think that the whole idea of using VR to raise test scores is probably a little too new, um, I think the overall premise behind it uh, is, is pretty stable and concrete. Good answer. One thing that I try and enlighten people on, and I'm not sure yet how effective I've been with it, is because VR is such an experience machine, its biggest power, as you alluded to, is teaching kids not necessarily facts or book knowledge, but more bigger ideas like concepts. I know uh, Stanford VR has their Becoming Homelessness VR uh, experience. And you know what that really is showing kids is the whole idea of whose fault is it homelessness, which is more of a big idea or a concept than a fact. Meredith, any thoughts on that? So one of the things that is, um, is really powerful with virtual reality, and in fact, some people call it the empathy machine. And so you're able to actually um, get into somebody else's shoes and see what it might be like to be, um, to, to, to be a, a different race or a different gender or uh, somebody who's homeless. Um, an experience that I have done is um, an experience around um, students who are they're participating in a protest and they have to kind of encounter people who don't have the same um, feelings about that they do about this particular topic. And um, I, 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 I'm thinking to myself, hmm, do I want to talk about this topic on the, on the podcast? So I'm, I'm, I'm censoring myself here. Let me, let me give you another example. Um, one, there's a, a great museum exhibit called uh, the enemy and you're basically go to uh, you're, you're, you're walking through the museum and you see different people from two sides of each of the, a few different conflicts, um, the Congo, um, it's Israeli and Palestine. So you're basically seeing two different sides of the story. And at the end, you walk through a final room and you look up and you are one of the people, like you would be, for example, the Palestinian and a virtual Israeli walks into the room and you have to, you know, figure out how you're gonna interact with them. So here's an example where you're learning about other people's stories and then you're actually embodying somebody else and trying to imagine what it must be like to uh, encounter your enemy face to face. Wow, good example. I wanna talk a bit about another chapter that you had in your book, which I found to be fascinating and interesting and that is equity when it comes to VR. So one of your chapters, you guys talked about the worry that there's going to be even greater gap between those who have money and resources versus those schools around the world who can't keep up with, you know, the latest and greatest uh, tool. Um, so my question, I guess, is what can you tell listeners, I guess, about this in general? And then more importantly, how do we solve this issue? So um, maybe I'll take, I'll, I'll take a pass at that. Um, one of the things that we see is that technologies that seem unreachable 
become more affordable, they could become um, more um, feasible in different situations. So uh, one of the one of the people who are highlighted in that chapter is um, a person who is in South Africa and has used has his the students develop AR capabilities. And he talks about having local, making sure your content is local and your sources of, of software and of, of activities are local. Um, thinking about how do you get a champion, somebody who can kind of help get the word out about this new technology? Um, how can you get people so that they have their hands on it so that they're really you know, trying things out? When, when it comes to um, you know, feasibility in terms of cost, it's amazing how fast the technology is becoming better quality and lower cost. But I think that rather than imagining, okay, rather than saying we can't do that because not everybody can afford it right now, what we want to think about is how do we get so that we can get these technologies out to a wider range of students? And how can we develop good content so that as it's as we're getting that technology out, there um, are meaningful let and learning experiences to start from. Dave, anything to add to that? No, I think Meredith did a fantastic job covering um, the basic premise that we were trying to relate with that that part of the book. Awesome. What you guys, what excites you most about the future of VR in education, schools, etc. All right, so I'll jump on this one first. Um, I have two things right now that's exciting me about VR. Uh, one is uh, I'm impressed. I, I hear some things. I see some things. People are working on coming out with uh, more exploratory type VR experience or sandboxes, ones where students have a little more open-ended experiments. Maybe it's dissections, exploring a virtual world and less of the scripted content that is just delivered in a linear fashion. So I'm excited about more of that coming out. And the second thing I'm excited about, uh, apparently Oculus just um, unveiled uh, a feature of the Oculus Quest that it is equipped to handle native hand movements. So it has the ability to get rid of the touch controllers and just use your hands. The downside of that is they readily admit there's no content for it yet, but they're going to be releasing an SDK in the near future uh, with an update so people can begin programming. So just the idea that uh, the hardware is already in place to go headset only, no computer and no controllers. Uh, I'm looking forward to that a lot. I would agree with you with your comment about content. You know, just like anything, there will be an evolution, but I would concur, Dave, that some of the content is coming from developers who aren't always necessarily educators. And so, you know, just walking through, for example, a museum to look at 360 pictures of things isn't as, um, or creates as emotional a response as applications where, as you alluded to, kids have to, you know, create or kids have to uh, embody what it's like to be someone else. And so uh, I appreciated your comment about how the content uh, needs to develop in that. Meredith, did you want to chime in on what, what you're excited about for the future of VR? Yeah, I, I, 
Uh oh. Uh, I just received a text message that she may have lost connection. We'll keep going, Dave, just to sort of finish this off. And then um, if she jumps back in, that's great. So, Dave, what are your goals in regards to the next year with VR at your school? Well, uh, as we look towards the future at my school, uh, we're looking to expand a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm proud to say we, we started out with 15 riffs. Uh, we've just upgraded to 15 of the Rift S's, and uh, we also currently have six Quests, and we're looking to buy two more. Uh, kind of the goal with this is my class is structured in a way that, you know, you, you mentioned the content, that not all of it's very good. And so that's one of the things that we do. I teach my students, how do we sift through what's available and decide what's meaningful? And then once we find something that's meaningful, how do we apply it to a regular classroom? Um, so we will continue to do that, but we're also, as content becomes available for the Quest, we're putting that in the hands of basically our science department because that's where the majority of the content now lies. And we're gonna train the teachers and their classes on how to properly care for them and maintain them. Um, and by doing that, that'll free us up to be a little more experimental. But overall, we're just looking to expand the program. The other part that we're looking to expand is we're in the process of setting up two VR stations in our makerspace mm -hmm. to go along with two of our 3D printers where art students or just um, other students who have an interest in it can create some spatial art in apps such as Sculptor VR and then 3D print their creations. Perfect, yes. Uh, as a design teacher myself, uh, that's one exciting possibility that uh, I hope many schools start to sort of dive down that pathway because, you know, it's, it's one thing to create in a pancake, two-dimensional flat screen using Fusion 360 or SketchUp, if you will, but it's a whole new world when you're starting to walk around your object and, and look at its size and shape and you know, get the perspective that you would that VR provides. Anything else, Dave, that you think the listeners might be interested in hearing before we wrap up? You know, uh, we've mentioned the book quite a few times, and uh, it's a great place to start for any teacher or school district looking to get into VR. It takes a look at uh, whether you're looking to get in at the lower elementary level with like Google Expeditions or Google Cardboard. And then we talked a little bit about low resource settings. Um, but then we also spend a lot of time addressing, you know, the high-end VR and how it can be used in education as well. Um, so the book out there just goes through a whole bunch of things about uh, planning, things you probably didn't think about, um, money you probably should set aside for um, peripheral objects that you didn't see coming that you didn't know you would need. Um, but uh, we're just trying to get the word out. We think it's a valuable resource. We think it's a valuable technology. And we want people to not only purchase it, but implement it effectively. Because one of the worst things that school systems have a history of is purchasing the newest and latest technology not training anybody on how to properly use it. And then it sits in a closet until it's outdated. And so we're hoping to kind of avoid some of those pitfalls. Awesome. If people are interested in the book or 
even just getting a hold of you or Meredith, how would what would be the best spots to find you guys? Well, the book uh, it's on Amazon. You can uh, get either paper print or the Kindle version. It was published through Carnegie Mellon's ETC Press, and so I should probably give them a little bit of a shout out. Um, we also have other resources and blog posts. Uh, we have a little website called EnvisionXR.net, um, and that has all of our contact information, uh, emails. You can get a hold of us that way. And either one of us, Meredith is fantastic. Um, she has been an inspiration to me. She's been the driving force behind this project. She just has ideas um, that never seem to stop. But uh, either one of us are more than willing to share what we know, our experiences, things we like, things we don't like, um, and just answer questions. Wonderful. Speaking of inspirational, you guys have definitely been that for me as well. Uh, when I first started a VR lab back in Canada, this was two years ago, I had no idea there were that many people out there doing stuff like this. And so to stumble across your book, as well as through this podcast to learn the whole sort of gamut of people around the world who are diving deep into VR and, and sort of moving the needle as it pertains to student experiences is amazing. Well, thank you, Craig. Well, you got we appreciate I see Meredith is back for a sec. Meredith, we're kind of wrapping up. Did you want to say your last words in regards to anything else listeners might want to know about VR? Oh, well, I think that um, the interesting the interesting kind of next steps for VR are to kind of join more of the extended reality, the XR. So we're, imagine using VR, AR, and other mixed realities to really um, enhance education in lots of different ways. There are different reasons to use VR. VR is very um, focusing and it definitely gets, it, it, it immerses you in an environment, whereas AR can be used to, for example, um, show some scientific concepts, show um, sound waves or magnetic fields. And so there are different affordances of these different types of technologies. And as they become more um, easily accessible, I think you're gonna see some really cool stuff happening in education in terms of how do we deliver different content. Well, you guys, thanks for paving that road for everyone. And uh, I hope people do get a hold of your book because as I said before, I've read it and it's certainly very helpful and informational. So I'll wrap up from there. Uh, hope you guys have a wonderful day and weekend and thanks for being on my show. Thank you.